Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Becky and I are big fans of a show on TV called Shark Tank. Anybody else, by any chance, watch that? We're, I'll admit, we're hooked to it, actually. I uh, absolutely love watching it. And there's a show that comes after it that's called American Greed. I don't know if anybody's seen that one. I think we've probably have watched it five, six times. But I think it's pretty much about people who take advantage of other people by swindling them out of their money. And they do this by claiming to be something that they're not. Well, one of the episodes we watched was about a woman by the name of Rita Crudwell. And she was the comptroller of a small town in Illinois. You, probably, you might have heard of it because it's the boyhood home of uh, former President Ronald Reagan. Dixon, Illinois is the name of the town. And, and so she was Dixon's comptroller since the early 1980s, and she was a respected and trusted member of the community, so much so that no one came close to guessing that beginning in 1990, she, she began embezzling, uh, funneling the, you know, taxpayers' money into her own secret bank accounts. And she did this for 21 years until finally in 2011 when she was gone on vacation. Somebody was taking her place and working and they, they uncovered this thing that she had been doing for so many years. And so she was arrested, convicted, put in prison and where she is today. But not until she had already embezzled $53 million. And, and it wasn't like she, she you know, hid that all away in, a, in, in her bank accounts for some rainy day in her life. Instead, what she did, she lived a very public, very lavish, very extravagant lifestyle. And the thing that, the thing that uh, Rita was into the most was horses. And so with the money that she had stolen, uh, she created, she built what many people believe to be a uh, world-class uh, a horse breeding farm, and so she, I mean, she had she had hundreds of horses. She traveled worldwide. She lived among the the rich and the famous. She had several homes, and I mean, really, you name it, Rita had it. But as what, what's so fun about this whole story is because she was working for the city. Her her salary was public record. So everybody knew that she, made, she didn't make anything more. You know, uh, her, her salary was around $80,000. But everybody assumed that she had to be like one very, very smart lady, knew how to use her money well. Some people thought maybe she had inherited some other money. And, and, and many people thought she had made a ton of money off of her, off her, her horse breeding business. Uh, so for the most part, everybody was impressed by what she had accomplished. She was a big deal in a small town. And, and so when it all came out, people were absolutely stunned to find this out. But they were also very angry because she had used their money to, you know, live this life that she had been living for 21 years. I think you agree with me. I think you would. That there's hardly anything worse than being deceived into believing something about another person that is not true. I mean, it hurts so many people. It's tragic every single time it happens. And I bet every one of us, we could think of people that we've known or we've heard about who have done that kind of a thing. And I, th I think most tragic of all is when someone who is well-known and highly respected as a religious leader is discovered to be living 
uh, double life, when to find out what, what you thought was, was genuine was in reality a total sham. I mean, it does so much harm to so many people. It's devastating to those who followed the leadership of this person. It, it creates a, a sense of cynicism and distrust that's really hard to overcome for those, you know, for anybody been affected by this person uh, for the rest of their life. And for those who are already suspicious of Christianity, of any religion, it, it reinforces this perception that, that they have of, of Christianity, of Christians that it's just, you know, all hypocritical, it's, it's all false, and it pushes them even further away from any interest or openness to the Christian faith. It's very tragic. But the tragedy of this isn't limited to those in leadership. It's tragic for any one of us to be less than genuine in the lives that we live. Because the fact is, every single one of us have an impact on other people. And it's, we especially influence the lives of those who are the closest to us. And the stakes are even higher in today's world where there's a growing cynicism toward Christianity with moral values changing as much as they are and so quickly, where once the Bible was respected, it's now often discredited and labeled as extreme or narrow-minded. And so really, it's, it's not surprising that those who believe the Bible to be God's word are finding the same labels placed on them. And perhaps you've experienced that, uh, someone else saying that kind of thing about you as a believer in Christ. But the mistake we could make, everybody, and this is something not to miss, all right? The mistake we could make is to become defensive and expect other people to respect us and trust us when the truth is it's really on us to earn the respect and trust of other people. I would say if there's, if there's ever a time that calls for genuine living, it's now. It's right now. For so many years, I have believed that short of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is nothing, nothing more convincing of, of the truth of Christianity than a genuine life, than you and I living genuine lives. And I'm convinced that that God places top value on this. Of all the things that God values, he puts genuine living, I believe, really at the top. And so this is where Peter's, the short letter that Peter wrote that we find at the end of the New Testament is so helpful for us. It was written to a group of, 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 of Christ followers that, who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, not by their own choice, but for their own survival. They were, in, in the truest sense of the word, they, they were refugees. And they were among the first of thousands of believers in Christ down throughout the history of the church who lost everything because of their faith, their faith in Jesus. Now, knowing that, you might expect Peter to write a letter to these believers bemoaning their loss and their suffering. And in that letter, saying to them, you know, I, I just feel so sorry for you. I just wish you didn't have to go through this. 
you know, all of those kinds of things. But, but Peter does the very opposite. Instead, he encourages them and he challenges them to make the most of, of the suffering that they're going through in their lives. And so he leads with what I think is a life-changing perspective. He begins by saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by praising God, and, and then he gives the reason why he's doing that. He, he said this, in his great mercy, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Not something that's dead, but something that's living, that's, that's, that's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he said, into an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. In other words, eternity with God in heaven. He said, man, praise God for what you have and praise God for what I have. It's something that can be, never be taken away from us. And then he writes this, and I, I believe it's a key statement in this entire book, pointing us to the, really to the rest of what Peter is about to write. And so he, he said this, and in all this, in all of your suffering, in all of your hardship, you greatly rejoice. Rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then he writes, gives a reason for those trials. He said, these have come, these trials have come so that your faith, and then he describes it, of greater worth than gold, far greater than, worth, than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, he said, these have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So don't miss that, all right? He said, these have come, these trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. Peter's concern for them is not that they'll escape their trials, that's not what he's concerned about. It's for them to prove the genuineness of their faith by the lives that they're living in the midst of their trials. And in the rest of this letter, he, he shows them how to do this. So, the last two Sundays, Jeff unpacked the first of these two ways. And, and first of all, it's by living, as you remember, Jeff talked about this, by living a holy life. And Peter quoted from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And this statement, he said, Just as he who called you, God, who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it's written. And, then, and this is from the book of Leviticus. God speaking to the Israelites. God said, be holy because I am holy. For our faith to be believable, for our faith to be genuine, there's got to be a distinct difference in how we live. You know, our, our faith cannot be all talk and, and no walk. And really, everybody, I think there is, I'm, in fact, I'm convinced, there's hardly anything more damaging than someone who talks about their faith in Christ, but at the same time, they live in a way that totally contradicts what they claim to be. They, in fact, there's a word for this. It's hypocrisy, Right? You'll hear people say it. The church is full of hypocrites. 
What you and I want to make sure is that that's not true. And so Peter tells us what to do with hypocrisy in the very first verse of the next chapter. He said, rid yourself of all malice. And we'll look at the rest of this verse, but one part I want us to see. Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit. And then he said, hypocrisy. Get rid of it, Peter said. Get rid of it. Stop sending two different messages to people. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and they, they told me how they're seeing their boss, who's a Christian, do this nearly every day. He's the owner of the business, so he's the one who, who sets the culture of the place, the, the climate in which everybody else is working. And, and he's, he's, he, this guy told me that he's very vocal about his faith, which, which would be absolutely great, except for how badly he's treating all of his employees. And he gave me one example of what this guy does. It's just, I mean, it's just, you can't, you go like, really? He actually does this? So they'll have, they, they, they have staff meetings every week. It's not a huge office. And so they all meet, everybody meets together. And every week he will begin the time by asking everybody how things are going, on, going in their own personal lives and Show, you know, like he really is caring for what's going on. And, he, and then he said, if there, is there anything you would like me to, to pray for you? You know, pray for you. And so for a moment, everybody feels good, except they know the history. So because within minutes, and I kid you not, within minutes, he's ripping into people because of something that's really minor in importance. And what he does in this place all day long and all week long is he creates this toxic environment because everybody's so worried that at one minute they might do something and this guy will suddenly blow up at them, you know, just like go crazy at them. I bet you if I, if I went to that office and I asked everybody their, what they think of his faith, they would probably say to me, if that's what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it, right? Can, you can understand that. So, first point Peter makes is don't just talk about your faith. You've got to live your faith. The statement, just as he who called you is holy, just as God is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, God said, be holy because I am holy. Peter's second way that Jeff talked about last Sunday for us to be genuine about our faith is to live each day with an eternal perspective. And in his own words, Peter said this, since you call on a father, God the Father, who judges each person's work impartially, someday we're going to stand before God. God's going to judge the life, you know, how we've, we're accountable for the life we've lived. Then he said this, live your lives as foreigners here in reverent Fear. Okay, now a foreigner is a person belonging to or owing allegiance to a country other than the country they're living in. All right, they're, they, where, where they live isn't their home. It's, it's a temporary residence for a specific purpose. And if they're really focused in what they're doing, then they stay focused on that purpose. They, they don't get distracted or pulled in by what's around them. And so I, I, I really like how Jeff said this last Sunday. He said, live as a stranger, as a foreigner, 
because your ultimate home is elsewhere. It's heaven. And then remember this statement from Jeff, the best is yet to come. Now, isn't it true? Isn't it true that we live in this constant tension between eternity, you know, the pull of eternity and the pull of life right now? It's, it's this constant tension that we deal with. But the fact is, the more eternity impacts how we live each day, the more genuine our faith will be to other people. Now, this morning, it's love that Peter points us to, and that's what I'd like to talk with you about. And I have a big truth that I'd like you to take home with you today. I'd like you to write it down. And this is the thing, this is, kind of, this is the thing I want us to remember. This is, this is really the, the, the main lesson of this morning, and it's this statement, okay? Loving people the way Jesus loves you epitomizes genuine faith, okay? Loving people the way Jesus loves you epitomizes genuine faith. It's genuine faith at its absolute best. More than, more than anything else, it makes your faith believable to others. It makes it credible. It gives them the confidence that it's the real deal. That's the point of, that we're looking at this morning. Loving people the way Jesus loves you epitomizes genuine faith. So here's what Peter wrote. These are the verses we're going to look at this morning. We'll dig into each one of them. He, he said, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Okay? Love one another deeply from the heart. And then he goes on. For He said, for you've been born again, spiritual birth. Not a perishable seed, but of an imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So he talks about spiritual rebirth there. And then he goes on. He said, therefore, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. And then I love this last statement. He said, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know, I, I, I would say that you could say that this is a, a sandwich passage. All right? You know, you know what a sandwich is, right? It's got two pieces of bread with something in between. And that's what we've got here. Uh, Peter, Peter starts it off by saying... Yeah, you've been born again through the living, enduring word of God. And then he ends it by saying, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. You see, Peter's writing to people who have been spiritually reborn. They've responded to the gospel, to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. They, you know, what really is the core, of God, the core truth of God's word. And, and, and so... Peter sees this happening in their life. He reflects on them and then he, on this, and then he challenges them to keep on growing. He says, be like a newborn baby 
When it comes to your hunger for God's word, he said, crave it so that you can grow up spiritually. So that's like one piece of it, and then you got the other piece of it. And then in between those two, he talks about loving deeply. It's in that context, he points them to the love that they're to have for each other. Really, love that epitomizes the genuineness of our faith, uh, the genuineness of our new life in Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. And there's two statements that, G that, that Peter makes that I'd like us to focus on. All right? Two statements in these verses. The first one is, love one another deeply from the heart. And then the second one is this statement, which really defines it, fleshes it out for us. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Okay, so here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, this is what is inevitable in the life of every person who is spiritually reborn and who's growing in their understanding of spiritual truth. He's saying, if you understand your own sinfulness and your need of God's forgiveness, and if you're feeding your heart and your mind with the truth of God's word, then you'll love others deeply from the heart. You'll love others without malice and without deceit and without hypocrisy and without envy and without slander. Peter says it's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's going to happen to you. I would say inevitable, but not easy. All right? In fact, the word deeply, where it says love one another deeply from the heart, means to be stretched to the limit. Stretched to the limits. It's actually a long-distance running word. And so what he's really saying is he's, he's saying we should love one another strenuously. Now, one of the things about physical exercise, and if, you'll, if you've done that, you'll agree with me, all right? The more you do it, the more strength you have to do it more, right? In the short run, it exhausts you. I mean, you don't feel so good, at, right, you know, in the short run. But if you stay with it in the long run, it'll give you more energy and it'll give you more strength. Isn't that true? If you've and if you've exercised, I think you would agree with me. On the other hand, okay, on the other hand, if you don't exercise, in the short run, you might feel really good not exercising. You know? Boy, I'm glad I didn't go exercise. It really feels good on this couch. You know, I really like this feeling. I just like sitting here and kind of laying back and slouching back, you know. But, but in, in the long run, you end up with less energy and less strength. And so really what Peter is saying is you can't go by your feelings when it comes to love. It's the same thing with love. The more you stretch yourself to love other people, the more strength you'll, you'll have to love even more. Okay? But you got to stretch yourself. You got to make yourself do what you don't feel like doing. And this is so important, everybody, because the more you love, the more you're going to show the genuineness of your faith to other people. Now, here's the deal. Here's what I don't want us to miss this morning. Loving others goes to the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It goes to the very heart of it. It epitomizes what it means to, to live, to have a life of genuine faith. 
And here's why. Because following Jesus means this, all right? It means putting aside what's all about you, okay? Putting that aside and caring for the you beside you, whoever that you might be, no matter how difficult to love that person might be. So putting aside what's all about you and caring for the you beside you, it's loving people the way Jesus loves you. See, this is why, why Jesus emphasized one command above every other command in Scripture. Did you know that? In, in John 15, he said this. He said, this is my commandment. This is my commandment. That you love one another even as I have loved you. It, it's, it's why the Apostle Paul could get by with making really a huge claim in, in the book of Galatians when, when, he said, when he said this. I mean, this is really in Scripture, everybody. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, counts with God is faith expressing itself through love. That is one very powerful statement. And that's why Paul could quote Jesus when he said, he made this other statement, which is a huge statement. He said, the entire law, all of God's law, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. I mean, think of it. All ten of God's commandments are fulfilled by keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's apply what Peter wrote. Let's take this whole thing, loving deeply, from the heart. I think it would be kind of fun. Let's apply it to what Peter wrote in the very first verse of chapter 2. This, this statement. Um, he said, rid yourselves of all malice. And all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of, of every kind. So let's go through each one of these, okay? So let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Do you know why you should never, never show malice toward another person? Because there's nothing loving in it. It only destroys. It only causes suffering and pain and distress. It, it hurts the person you're showing malice toward and it hurts you. It hurts yourself. You see, so, so, the, so the question to ask is, well, what's the very opposite of malice? What's the very opposite of it? Well, I think of words like this, goodwill, compassion, kindness, sympathy, thoughtfulness, wanting the very best for others. Really, that's what it's, that's what it's all about. The very opposite of malice. In the third chapter, where Peter picks up the whole subject of love, uh, he, he, he writes this. And it really, it's, it, it, it gives us the other side of the opposite of malice. He said, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic. That's the opposite of malice. Love one another. Be compassionate. That's the opposite of malice. And humble. And, and then he, he went on and he said, this is, and this is, I think, the very opposite. He said, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, and here is like the opposite of malice. Repay evil with blessing. Repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Okay? Uh, <laughs> second question. Do you know why you should tell the truth? 
Uh, is it because in the sixth chapter of the book of Proverbs, we're told that there are six things that God absolutely hates. They're at the top of his list of what he hates. And not telling the truth is one of them. Lying is one of them. Is that why we shouldn't lie? Well, it's a good reason not to lie, but it's not the number one reason. The number one reason not to lie, the number one reason to tell the truth is because we love people. And, and when you lie, you hurt the person you lie to or you lie about. You're, when you lie, you're covering yourself at someone else's expense. When you lie, you're saying to the person you're lying to, you're not worthy of the truth. Whatever is best for you is secondary to me. You see, the primary reason we should tell the truth, we shouldn't lie, is because God says we shouldn't lie because God is concerned about the people we're tempted to lie to. Jesus says you tell the truth because you love people. That's the number one reason. Here's another question. Do you know why you shouldn't be envious? You know why you shouldn't be envious? Is it because the, ten, the tenth of God's ten commandments tells us not to covet? What other people have? Is, it, is that why? You know, is it because, you know, well, it's a very good reason, but it's not the primary reason. The primary reason is that when, when you are envious of what another person has or another person does, you're not loving that person. You're not loving them at all. And so really the question to ask is, what is the very opposite of envy? Because that's the way you want to be because you love people. And I would say it's celebrating, it's celebrating and enjoying the success and good fortune of others. It's doing what the Apostle Paul said we should do in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans when he made this statement, rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. In other words, thoroughly enjoy what brings joy to others. Thoroughly enjoy it. Like celebrate with them. Hey, here's another question. Do you know why you shouldn't talk badly about someone? Is it because it says right here in 1 Peter that, that you and I should really, we shouldn't slander another person? Is it because God tells us in his word that we shouldn't gossip? Because really gossip and slander are the same thing. And I would say, yes, those are, those are definitely good reasons not to gossip and slander but the number one reason is that it, that's a very unloving thing to do. Very unloving. Unloving because it hurts the person you're slandering and it, end, it, it undermines their character, their reputation in the minds of other people. See, honestly, isn't it true? Even if it wasn't in the Bible, you shouldn't do this because you're smart enough to know that it hurts other people. Really, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself and at the same time gossip about them and slander them. I mean, you just, they don't belong together. Here's the deal, everybody, okay? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. You can take this with everything in Scripture that God tells us not to do and God tells us to do you can take it with every imperative in scripture and the number one reason to obey God is because it's a loving thing to do for others it's a loving thing to do so here's what I think is the bottom line okay the bottom line every imperative 
everything God tells us to do and everything God tells us not to do in Scripture. Every, everything is an example of how to demonstrate your love for God by loving others. Okay? Don't miss that. Every imperative, every imperative in Scripture is an example of how to demonstrate your love for God, to really prove you love God by loving others, by loving others. You see, it all came down to what Jesus said are the two greatest commands. You know what that is? Loving God and loving your neighbor, okay? Everything in the Old Testament... Everything in the New Testament, all of it, is an example, it's an illustration, it's an application of what it looks like to love God by loving your neighbor. They're not there for your benefit, not there for my benefit. We're all going to benefit from them, but they're not there for us. And they're not there for God because God's absolutely fine, really, They're there for the benefit of people in your life who you're called to love. They're there for the sake of others in the same way that Jesus Christ came to this earth for the sake of others. Perhaps a good perspective to have on this is this perspective, right? It's not complicated following Jesus. It's not hard to figure out what we're to do and what we're not to do. I think... It's not not rocket science to figure that out, all right? But I tell you what, it's demanding, isn't it? Not hard to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, but it sure is hard to do it, sure demanding. See, don't forget this, everybody. Don't forget this. At the epicenter of, of the Christian faith is a man who died covered in his own blood and covered by the spit of those who spit at him. This is what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus in our relationship with other people. As Paul wrote in the second chapter of Philippians, that wonderful set of verses about the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He began it by making this statement. He said, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Wow. I am absolutely convinced that this is tops in value with God, a genuine life. And I tell you what, these days people are looking for a faith that's genuine. They want it. And there's no greater way to show this than loving others in the same way that Jesus loves you. And so I'll go back to this, this statement again. I want us to walk out with it. Loving people the way Jesus loves you epitomizes genuine faith. And I'm convinced, I believe, that short of the resurrection... Short of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son, there is nothing more convincing of the truth of of Christianity than a genuine life. Imagine the power of it. All of us living that kind of life out where we are every single day, whether it's at work or our neighborhood or wherever we be, people, they look at our life and as as they get to know us, they see that what we believe, there's a consistency between what we say and, and, and how we live, it is so powerful. Well, let's pray, okay?
Father, I, I, I'm so grateful to you for your love and your forgiveness, your mercy for each one of us. I think of your son, Jesus Christ, and everything that he gave. And Father, I ask that your spirit would give us wisdom, give us an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to live the life you want us to live. And then, Father, that at the very core of who we are, I pray that your spirit will strengthen us to love people deeply, to love them from our heart, for your glory, and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.